When I was a faculty member, I once had a dentist in my class. He might have been an oral surgeon. To be honest, I don't remember what sort of degree he had or exactly what he did for a living. He was a researcher, though, and he studied the human jaw, teeth, and the surrounding bone and muscle and other tissue. We'll call him Joe. He was taking my 3D modeling and animation class because he wanted to model the human head as part of his research. We would often talk after class and he would tell me about his work. I am, of course, as I always do, changing details to protect this person's privacy. One day after class, he and I were talking and he seemed to be stressed out. I asked him if everything was okay. He started to say yes, everything was fine, but then he interrupted himself and said, no, things are not okay. The people who are funding my research think things are moving too slowly. They're not happy with my progress. I told him that this is a complaint that many researchers make. Whether your funding agency is the National Science Foundation, the military, a, a corporation, or a nonprofit, they always want you to fix the entire world tomorrow. This often drives researchers to exaggerate the impact of their research. Many times I've reviewed an academic paper and concluded that the work was solid, but the authors were dramatically overstating the significance of their work. Joe told me that he understood all of this and he knew that he just had to keep working and hope that eventually he could satisfy the people who were funding him. The hard part, he said, though, was how depressed it made him to keep getting negative feedback. He said that he thought about it all the time, that he was having trouble sleeping, and that much of the time he didn't even want to continue as a researcher. I'll get back to Joe. Chapter 19 of First Kings concerns a prophet named Elijah. He prophesied probably in the 800s BC. The king at the time was Ahab. Ahab's queen was Jezebel. In First Kings, Jezebel is a pagan and she worships the god Baal. She works aggressively to displace the Israelites god and make Baal the new god of the Israelites. And her husband, King Ahab, tries to please both her and the religious leaders of Israel by worshiping both Baal and God. But because of Jezebel's powerful influence, anyone who speaks out against the policies of the king and notes that they do deny the one true God are persecuted. So God sends Elijah to King Ahab to deliver this message. There's going to be a drought. The people of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas survived on subsistence farming. And so any drought would be widely lethal. By the way, there's good historical evidence that a drought did happen in Israel and the surrounding area at this time. The followers of Baal believe that Baal controls the rain. And so this prediction by Elijah would show that God is indeed more powerful and is the true God. 
But because of this statement from the prophet, the king becomes unhappy with Elijah, and so God tells Elijah to leave Ahab's territory and to head to Phoenician territory for his own safety. God makes sure that Elijah has enough to eat. Eventually, God decides to end the drought, and he sends Elijah to King Ahab with the message that rain is on the way. Ahab has been searching for Elijah, though, and now Ahab accuses Elijah of stirring up trouble in Israel. King Ahab wants to be able to worship both God and Baal, and that is that. Ahab agrees to test the relative power of God and the pagan gods that his wife likes to worship. This debate reflects the division between the people of Israel who have broken into two opposing groups depending on who they want to worship. The spiritual salvation of the people of Israel is at stake. Elijah confronts the people of God, telling them that they are going to have to make a choice that they cannot have two gods. The test is this, which God will actually bring rain? A group of pagan prophets initiate a frenzied ritual where they dance and shout and even cut themselves in order to bring rain. But nothing happens. Elijah makes fun of them. Then Elijah orders the pagan prophets all killed. Elijah warns that the real God will now soon send massive rains. Indeed, the sky grows black, the wind rises, and heavy rain starts falling. Elijah tells Ahab to come home quickly so he doesn't get caught up in the downpour. The king happens to be in an area that's easily flooded when it rains. Elijah ends up having to flee Jezebel, who has learned from the king that her prophets have all been executed. So although he has shown that the pagan god is powerless, Elijah ends up on the run for his life. Elijah was probably also disappointed. The big test, whereby Baal was shown to not be God because the one true God did bring about a dramatic end to the drought, didn't cause the people of Israel to completely abandon their paganism and return to God. Consider this abbreviated version of the beginning of chapter 19 of 1 Kings. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. He went a day's journey into the wilderness. He sat down under a bush and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. Then he fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there was by his head some baked bread over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled forty days and forty nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he came into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. 
Now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Elijah goes into the Judean wilderness to die because he thinks he's a failure, but God sends an angel to take care of him. He sleeps and he eats, and feeling better, he travels for 40 days and nights to get to Mount Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai. He's at the place where Moses received the Ten Commandments from God and where God initiated his relationship with the people of God. He tells God that he has been zealous in his service of God, but he has failed. He feels alone and he's depressed. Earthquakes, wind, and fire are all associated with God's appearance on earth in the Old Testament, but God is not present personally in any of those things. They simply mark the coming of God. God does appear, however, as a gentle voice in the mind of the prophet. This is how the prophet knows that it's time to take action. Elijah comes out of his depression when he realizes that he's not a failure. This is what happens. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazel, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, king over Israel. And anoint Elijah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazel, and Elijah will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. So God tells the prophet Elijah that a faithful remnant of the chosen people remains. The number is 7,000. Importantly, seven or 70 or 700 or 7,000 all represent perfection in the Bible. God tells Elijah that he's not a failure. He has succeeded. The researcher, Joe, who took my modeling class is no different than any of us. We all periodically get the feeling that we've failed at something. We look back and conclude that whatever it was that we were trying to do, whatever it was that was so important to us, we're not able to do it. We didn't succeed. It could be a job. It could be raising a child. It could be trying to protect your health. That sense of failure can cause us to want to give up and tell God, I have had enough, Lord. When that happens, we can do what Elijah did. We can find a quiet place, maybe somewhere in nature. We can rest. We can eat. Figuratively, we can do what Elijah did 
and we can walk for 40 days and then wait for God. Then instead of looking around at all that's gone wrong, we must look upward toward God. Notice that God did not tell Elijah that all of the Israelites have abandoned the pagan gods and returned to their faith. God only says that a remnant has come back to the one true God. The number 7,000 is symbolic. It means that although there's only a fraction of the people who have completely abandoned idolatry, it is exactly what is needed. 7,000 people finding their way back to their ancestors' faith means that their religion will survive. It's a foundation on which new generations of believers will be built. Right now, there have been tremendous losses in Christian churches, but all we need is 7,000. If we can get that core to hang on, to renew their faith and remain determined to keep their eyes turned toward God, then the foundation will be there. It might be long after our lifespans have ended, but I do believe, as has happened many times in the past, there will be a revival. We don't want people pretending to believe, to come to church because it's expected of them. We want a solid church consisting of people who truly believe. We want a core that ensures stability. Maybe the apparent size of the church in the 60s and the 70s was an illusion. Maybe only a fraction of them truly believed. Maybe they were all worshiping God and Baal. Maybe while they were pretending to follow the one true God, they were only Sunday Christians, and the other six days of the week they were indeed worshiping Baal by living only for the things of this world. We should focus on building that core, not on trying to do what even Elijah couldn't do, and that was to solve the problem all at once and magically bring everyone back to the faith. I had a long talk with that dental researcher, Joe, one day after class. He was very down on himself. He felt he had failed. He wasn't going to be able to produce fast enough results to keep his funding. He would have to lay off members of his research team. Complete failure would be just around the corner. I suggested that he focus on his work, though, do his best, and have pride in whatever results he was able to achieve. Yes, he needed to work at selling his research to the folks who were funding him. But he should avoid any out-and-out -out exaggeration of what he had achieved. But first, I said, relax and take a day or two off. Get some rest. Make sure you're eating right. Then just get back to work. I assumed that, like most academics, he certainly wasn't a believer. So I didn't get Christian on him. But then he volunteered that although he had not been to church in many years, he did indeed believe in God. He said that he had tried to pray about it. I told him that I'm a Christian and connecting with God is a great idea. Maybe God would convince him, I said, that what really matters is his relationship with God, not his relationship with the people who funded him. Maybe God would give him the peace he needed to relax 
and have that major research breakthrough. That remnant that we must leave behind us does not have to be gigantic. We need to hand off to the next generation a core of believers that's big enough to keep the church alive, to be that seed that will one day blossom into a major renewal of faith in this nation. One of the reasons that I'm confident that this core exists is that as a chaplain at a hospital and in my everyday life, I've met so many people like Joe, the researcher, people who do indeed believe, who've turned away from the official church, but when trouble hits, they discover that their faith is still very much alive. There are many, many more believers out there than most of us realize. And every single one of us should be proud and find joy and peace in knowing that we are indeed one of the 7,000.